Welcome to Crosspoint, everybody. I was just out in the parking lot. I have mixed news. It's good and bad. We're out of parking. Yeah, you probably, you probably feel like that because you found a parking spot. Not so exciting for the people who were circling for the last five minutes. I'm not entirely sure what we should do about that and when, but it feels like God's just working here and adding people to our church. A third service can't be far behind. Uh, so just be ready. In the meantime, while we seek the Lord's direction on that, uh, you can help, actually. If you're, if you're able-bodied, we would love for you to park down the street. Rainbow Disposal, our, our neighbors right down Nichols, have given us permission to park in their lot on Sunday mornings. I'm parked there. A few others are as well. We don't make a big deal about that. It's never really been super necessary. We've had enough people doing that that it's been okay, but this morning it's not, okay? Um, <laughs> We had a lady with a disabled placard who couldn't find any parking space, much less one with, uh, that would put her close to the building. We figured it out. We're creative, but we don't want to be creative forever. Let's, uh, you can love and serve other people. Uh, if you have the time and the physical strength for that, park probably about a three-minute walk down the street. It's lovely. You'll enjoy it. I did this morning. <laughs> Is Fred Williams somewhere in this building? Where are you at, Freddie Jean? Pastor Fred Williams is here, ladies and gentlemen. He was my college pastor. I have notes handwritten from a 20-something-year-old me, things that Fred said that stick with me still because I wrote them down. Fred, welcome. Sue, glad you're here. Just the two of you. Any kids? Just the two of you. Life's good then. All right. <laughs> Sorry, that was mean. I didn't mean it that way. <laughs> Parents everywhere nodding in quiet agreement, knowing exactly what I meant. Okay. That, by the way, is a proof of a proverb where there are many words and is not absent. You keep talking, you'll get yourself in trouble. We've been walking through the book of Proverbs. We paused last week to acknowledge and try to cope biblically with what's happening in our country. This morning, we return to the wisdom of Proverbs. If you'll look with me, please, to Proverbs chapter 3. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, if you didn't bring one of your own, you should be able to find one nearby. Proverbs is roughly in the middle of that book. Psalms is directly in the middle. It's the largest book in the Bible. If you'll go one book to the right, you'll find the book of Proverbs. And this morning we are taking a look into God's Word in chapter 3. Let me tell you what Proverbs are. Proverbs from a God-inspired perspective invite you to sit down and listen to wisdom. The first ten chapters of Proverbs are rather direct. We're in Proverbs 3, verses 1 through 12. It is a wisdom speech. It's a talk from a father to a son. He's going to take up a topic that he knows his child is going to need not only to thrive, but to actually survive in life. This elder, this man who has walked with God and heard from God, knows that his young son is heading out into a world that though it existed 3,000 years ago, is just like ours. It's filled with wickedness and foolish people who sometimes through ignorance and sometimes through willfulness will ruin their lives and the lives of other people. The proverbist knows that his son will lack good friends along the way. 
So he's going to talk to him, and this is what Proverbs does. It's going to talk to him all about all of life. Its theme, its foundation is found in Proverbs 1 verse 7 that tells us that the very beginning of knowledge is a fear of the Lord, a right reverence, an awe of God. If you don't have that in the center, everything else is flailing and futile. So in Proverbs, you're invited to sit down face to face with the wise man who can show you the topography of life. One way of looking at Proverbs is it makes you sit at the crossroads and watch two men take different paths. One is the wise man who goes on to blessing and prosperity and safety and reward. The other is a fool who disregards God, will not listen to warnings, will not heed instruction, and will go right on to ruin his life, sometimes damaging many other people along with him. That's the beauty of Proverbs. I think of the first ten chapters, in a sense, as the training wheels of Proverbs because they're very direct and specific. Beginning in Proverbs chapter 11 and moving onward, Proverbs is primarily going to delve into the two-line sayings that we're so familiar with. In the beginning, the teacher makes it very plain and very direct before he invites his hearers to listen to these little catchy sayings. Sometimes their meaning is obscure, and you have to sit a little bit and ponder. If you're doing what we've, what we've invited you to do as a church and read the chapter of Proverbs that goes along with the day of the month, so that today you would read the 17th chapter of Proverbs, you'll find that sometimes the meaning of a proverb does not immediately become apparent. That's an invitation to consider the imagery and look in two directions. Look back and see what that image is trying to tell you. See where you've seen that come true in your life or the life of somebody else. And then look forward and ask God what you should do about it. That's Proverbs. And it's much more than a catchy sayings. Solomon knows as he begins to instruct his son that the wisdom he has for him actually has the very power of life and death. That his son at his young age stands at that crossroad ready to choose a path, and Solomon knows from the wisdom of God himself and his own life experience that the outcomes, the result, the story that will be written from this young man's life will depend exactly on how well he listens and how faithfully he dares to trust God instead of himself and do what God has said. In many ways, the book of Proverbs has reminded me this week as I thought about how I should explain this passage to you of a tragedy that occurred 17 years ago yesterday. On July 16, 1999, JFK Jr. boarded a plane that he had only owned for three months. He was a somewhat experienced pilot, and he had been trained for the flight he was undertaking that day. He had just bought a Piper Saratoga II airplane. The intention was that he would take his wife and her sister back to their native Massachusetts, and there were going to be some family celebrations there. Some people have reported that JFK Jr. expressed doubts about whether he should take the flight. But his wife wanted to go, and it was certainly legal. It was within his training to take that very short flight, leaving New Jersey, flying up along the coast, briefly over the Atlantic into Massachusetts. 
It was legal. I say it was legal because he was trained, qualified to fly on visual recognition. But he wasn't certified for instruments. Experienced pilots know that the conditions, especially at dusk, can change very quickly in that part of the country. And even as he took off, with sunlight still available, one of the people close to him, what he has said, what he would have seen in a very short period of time was nothing. The haze, the humidity would have made the coastline just a smudge. And then it got dark. And because there was no real call for distress, it took the NTSB in their careful way a long time to put together what they believe happened. But in the dry language of people who are reconstructing air disasters, they attribute the fact not to mechanical failure, but what they call spatial disorientation. In other words, because of his inexperience, and because of the darkness, and because of the haze that had preceded it, and because the coastline was quickly left behind him shortly after he took off, JFK Jr., for all his training, for all his wealth, could not literally tell the difference between up and down. They estimate he flew straight into the Atlantic at a rate of 79 feet a second. The only mercy in that is because he was so disoriented, because he could not trust his instruments, because he was not certified to fly with them, he very likely believed that he was flying straight, right side up, and headed to his destination until a few seconds before he crashed into the Atlantic at that terrific rate of speed. It happens all the time. The authorities estimate that a full 5% of crashes are due to, the diff to this tragic reality that sometimes pilots cannot tell the difference between up and down. His last sight would have been the Pacific, the Atlantic, spinning toward him at 79 feet a second. Much too late to do anything about it. Proverbs chapter 3 invites us into the spiritual reality of what tragically happened to that family. It's going to tell you that you're walking through life on visual recognition, that you have been taught and you were taught by your own heart, by your culture, by practically every voice around you except the voice pointing you back to God the Father and His Son Jesus Christ to fly on visual recognition, to go on the evidence that you've been given to listen to the other voices reassuring you that it's going to be okay. But there's going to be many times in your life, in fact, Solomon would tell us that all of life is a flight, is a journey that can only be safely undertaken if you're flying with the security of instruments that will tell you exactly what's happening. This is Scripture. This is not a collection of human wisdom. This is not a repository of somebody's best ideas of how to get through life. This isn't an article on the internet telling you five things that you need to know right now. This is timeless wisdom, wisdom humanly speaking, written down 3,000 years ago, giving evidence to the fact that it's the very Word of God, that though it's ancient, it speaks to my life situation right now at this moment. It has the authority and the high-definition clarity to tell you exactly who God is, what your relationship with Him should be, and how to walk faithfully with Him through life that is not, in this sin-wrecked world, not easy, not always blessed, but on the contrary, is difficult and confusing and harsh. 
That's what Solomon wanted to spare his son when he wrote Proverbs chapter 3, verse 1. Follow along with me, please. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. In other words, this is an invitation to the life God intended. This is the way to the good life that everybody desires. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of His reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom He loves as a father, the son in whom He delights. How do you fly on instruments? How do you fly straight up? How do you stay on a safe, blessed, happy course with everything going on around us? Proverbs first says, in very plain, simple language, the blessed life, the life that God intended for His children, even in this sin-wrecked world, begins when we keep God's commandments. Do not forget my teaching. Let your heart keep my commandments. Lengths of, length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Here's two images for you to consider. We'll study this in a minute. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. In other words, what Proverbs is telling you from the outset is there is a definite path to blessing beyond personal opinion. Did you catch that? That second line is as countercultural as just about anything anybody could say. In other words, God is saying, I know the truth. I see reality. I know the difference between wisdom and foolishness. I know the difference between life and death. I know the difference between peace and cursing. This is the way. Walk in it. God has spoken, and He has given that instruction to people who, in fatherly love, can pass that on to their children, as you've seen in the front of this room, with four generations of people all seeking the Lord together. That's what God intended. There is a definite path to blessing, and it lies beyond personal opinion. Here's the trouble. It is, these verses tell me, received from God and passed along through our elders. Let's think about that for a second. Do you see why the United States would have trouble receiving this wisdom from Proverbs chapter 3 if God has spoken it and our elders pass it along to us? Where's the challenge? Where's the cultural conflict? Both, right? We increasingly live in a world that doesn't believe that God has spoken, and frankly, elders don't have much to offer us. And we live in a culture that idolizes youthfulness. 
energy. First sign of a wrinkle, you don't have much left to contribute. That's our cultural understanding. God's wisdom stands four square against that. It says that we can know the truth, that God has spoken as the unfolding story of Scripture comes into focus. As you keep reading right through your Bible, you're going to learn that God stopped sending prophets and messengers and actually sent His own Son to be the incarnate truth, to speak people truthfully and clearly about God and judgment and salvation and tell them that He alone was the way, the truth, and the life. This gospel, this good news, which we try to preach here not only on Sundays but with our lives out in our community, that is the path to blessing, but it comes from God through our elders, and it is intended to encompass every bit of the hearer's life. Let's study the Bible a little bit. Look in Proverbs chapter 3 and look carefully at the images in verses 3 and 4. It says, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. And there's a strange phrase. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. What does it mean to to make sure that steadfast love and faithfulness are tied around your neck and written on the tablet of your heart? What's the point? This is how Proverbs work. It paints a word picture and invites you to think about it. It doesn't tell you always in direct language, here's what I mean. It gives you this vivid word image of you writing on the pages of your own heart, of you tying love and faithfulness around your neck. What's the point? Okay. Nobody, not everybody can hear that, so let me help. Sometimes I forget I'm the only one that has a microphone, so I invite these questions, and then four people hear the answer, and Pray for me, will you? It's, uh, it's just a chaos of conflicting thoughts and energies up here sometimes. Bind them around your neck. You ever gone to the airport, especially in international travel, and you see these people with their passport and every single document that they're going to need tucked in a giant lanyard around their neck? Looks a little goofy. Are you familiar with this? <laughs> Forgive me if you do that. Uh, I didn't mean to… I'm not calling you goofy. I just find the behavior goofy. Now, here's the question. Why in the world do people do that? So they don't lose it. Maybe I'm goofy because I'm the one who's always digging frantically through his suitcase trying to remember where he put his passport. People subject themselves to that fashion faux pas because when they're going overseas, they want to make sure that what they need is right there in front of them. It can't be easily taken from them. It's right close to their heart. That's Solomon's idea when he says this character transformation that will come from listening to God, you're going to have to bind that around your neck. You're going to have to choose to put it on. You're going to have to keep it close to you. Writing on a tablet of your own heart, same idea. It's telling you that wisdom from God is not so easily gained. It can't just be quickly tweeted and read and remarked and then passed on. It won't do you much good if you hear it and you don't internalize it. It has to be so close to you that you remember it that you memorize it, that that voice of wisdom and warning and blessing will speak up and spare you when you're on the precipice of disaster. 
that the wisdom of God passed on perhaps by your mother, your father, your pastor, an older Christian friend who has walked with the Lord longer than you have speaks to you in your mind and says, stop, what you're doing is foolishness. This won't take you anywhere you want to go. That's the first path. That's the first part of this life of blessing. We hear God's voice and we listen, we pay attention to it. It says in verse 4, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. In other words, it will touch and bless everything in your life. The repetitiveness in these verses tell you that the path of wisdom leads not only to a long life, but a life worth living that will give you blessing and favor vertically from God and horizontally from the people around you. And they're is one person who walked this path perfectly. Read with me, in fact, Luke chapter 2, verse 52, and listen to how it sounds like Proverbs 3, 4. This is a summary of the childhood of Jesus. Did you read that with me? It says, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. What was Jesus like as a young boy? What was He like as He entered adolescence? Right here. He was growing in wisdom. As a young child, he was listening to his elders. He was checking what his elders said against the Scripture he had learned to read. He was growing in stature, too. In other words, he was growing up. He was getting bigger. There was a time where Joseph said to Mary, I can't believe how big this boy's gotten. He used to crawl under the table. Now he just hit his head on it. He's gotten taller. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Here's your example. Because Jesus listened to wisdom, He had blessing and favor with God and with other people. Then Proverbs begins to get more specific. Look at verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. Here's a challenging little line. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. What the path of wisdom is indicating here, Solomon is saying to his son, listen, kid, God knows the way, and He's going to point it out to you. You should trust His direction. How many of you were familiar with the passage I just read? Just about everybody. This is one of the most quotable parts of the whole Bible, but there's a real spiritual battle in the midst of this. It's really focused, to me at least, in verse 7. Be not wise in your own eyes. Let me ask you, do you think you're right? Don't you? I think I'm right just about all the time. So do you. When I believe that I'm wrong, you know what I do? I change my mind and then I'm right again. It's a real blessing to my wife and kids, I can tell you. It's just, it's a great help in their life to be married to someone and be fathered by someone who's right all the time. Now, why'd you laugh? You laughed because you saw the absurdity of that. But that's exactly what Proverbs 3 in this little couplet is identifying. Every person ever born under the influence of sin who has expressed that influence by sitting themselves, in other words, by choosing their own path, every single person alive thinks they're right. 
That's why you have these raging, chronic fights in your marriage. That's why you tire of your friends sometimes, no matter how close they are. This is what makes parenting and time on the job difficult. You're living in a world of billions of people, all who think they are right. In other words, if you take this little passage that I just read to you as biblical slogans to seek the Lord's blessing and to go out and do whatever you want, you'll head straight into foolishness, straight into disaster. That's not the point of this proverb. The daily battle is my way or his. And the point of this passage, Solomon is telling his young son something that we all need to hear in America in 2016. You cannot control life and be your own God. That way of leaning on your own understanding, in other words, fulling the, putting the full weight of your life, your success on your best ideas that will fail you. You'll be disappointed. You'll be hurt. You won't have peace. You won't have blessing. You won't have refreshment. Life in the United States, for a whole bunch of reasons that I don't have time to delve into, has boiled morality and human behavior ethics down to this simple rule. Do what you want as long as nobody else gets hurt. Have you heard that? Without delving into specifics and details, because I truly don't have time, may I suggest to you that that simple ethic has led us into chaos? That selfish human beings are very poor judges of what it means to be hurt and what it means to hurt others? That we've created a world filled with billions of kings and queens who try to fashion life and subject reality to their own, own understanding and own benefit, and what we have is the fear and the chaos and the pain and the disappointment that we all live with every single day. In other words, in God's economy, in God's creation, because it is the king and the creator who is passing this wisdom on through an elder. These aren't Solomon's ideas. They have been received from God and passed along to someone who is too young and inexperienced and self-willed to know any better. But the king, the creator, he knows the truth. He knows the path. And he would tell you that in God's family, you make a wonderful friend and a wonderful servant and a wonderful son and daughter to God, but you make a terrible God yourself. You cannot be your own God. It feels good momentarily, but that way, which seems right to a man, ends certainly every single time in destruction. And what it means to trust in God with your whole heart, to not lean in your own understanding, to acknowledge Him, literally in Hebrew, to know Him in all of your ways, looks like this. You trust God by doing what He says in the confidence that He is always good. And visual recognition, what you can see, the thoughts that come up in your mind, the things that you're told by other voices, aside from the voice of your heavenly Father, will constantly tell you that there are circumstances in which God is not good, and those voices are always lying to you. They're always inviting destruction. Every time you're invited to trust in yourself and lean fully on your own understanding, and by the way, that in some ways gets harder as you get older. It's counterintuitive. You would think that walking with Jesus longer should make it easier, and it absolutely should. But if you don't humble your own will and say, God, 
I am your child, your servant, your friend. I am your chosen ransom. I was rescued by you. I am many things to you, but I am not God. You're God, you're Lord. I will lean on your own and on your understanding, even though nothing that you've said makes sense in this situation. That's where you'll find blessing. That's where you'll find peace and safety. Then the passage gets incredibly awkwardly uncomfortable and specific. You ever heard someone talk and they're talking in general principles and you're amening and cheering and giving cheerful looks? and smiles, and then they get to where you live, and it gets a little tough and uncomfortable for you. Ever been in that situation? Where amen turns into oh me? <laughs> that what happens, I think, probably on first reading in verse 9. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. What's that mean? Esteem God, honor Him by, as soon as you earn, give. This was an agrarian society. We're talking about 3,000 years ago. Almost everything, almost every income in ancient Israel was in some way tied to the land. This envisioned the temple, people bringing in their offerings, their sacrifices, their giving to God. What it looked like in real, in their real lives was the harvest started coming in and the first fruits were set aside for God. What are the first fruits? The first and the best part. That's 3,000 years ago. Most of us don't have harvests. Most of us don't have land. We have these little patches of dirt with constructed homes on top of them. That's about as close as we come, but we're not raising anything except a couple succulents, in my case, and a very, very small patch of dirt in front of the house. What's the point? The point is simply this. If you're going to lean on God's understanding, if you're going to know Him in every step you take, that's going to have some specifics. And one of them is as soon as you earn, as soon as income comes in, you don't wait and give to God until you see if there's enough for you and you have something left. In faith, in acknowledgement, in knowing and in reverence, in fear of Him, it says in Proverbs 1-7, you say this first and best part, that belongs to the Lord. He gave us this land. He gave us the sun and the rain. He made it grow. He gave me health to work, strength to harvest. All of this comes from His hand. We will give to Him. Though He has no needs of His own, He has commanded us to trust Him in this way. You see why I say it's oddly specific and can be a little awkward? That's something that shows God's path, not necessarily our own, but I know this, and I learned this from my pastor who used to stand up here, the way we handle our money shows very, very certainly who we really trust. My pastor used to say, show me your checkbook and I'll show you your priorities. Most of us don't use checkbooks, but if, I could, if you could look over my shoulder when I look at our online bank account, you'll know in a glance what matters to the Garner family. What kind of food, what kind of entertainment, what kind of clothing, what kind of house, what kind of cars, 
what kind of giving, everything that matters to us eventually boils down to a decision about money. The wisdom of God is put Him first, and that's one simple practical way that you can show that you really trust Him. And you're walking not on visual recognition because that may not make sense, but in the certain knowledge that He knows reality, and He is inviting you to be blessed, to experience peace, prosperity, blessing in your whole life. Then he closes this admonition in an even more um, direct way. Look at verse 11. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of His reproof. You put that in your own words? That's one way to study the Bible. You may be tired of me saying this, but here's my standard. If I can explain a Bible verse to an eight-year-old boy, I understand it. Don't go with an eight-year-old girl. They're sharper, okay? They're less distracted. Think of a third-grade boy. Ask yourself, how would I explain that to him? And if you can put that in your own words, then you got it. Verse 11, my son, he's getting his attention. He's calling him his son again. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary at His reproof. What's he saying? He's saying this, accept God's correction welcome it. Don't despise it. The reason for that is there's only one man in human history who walked this wisdom, who brought these commandments from his Father fully into his heart and lived them out in every detail. We've already seen a summary of his life. His name is Jesus. The point of the gospel is this, not that you can live up to all this, but that Jesus already did, and he offers his life in exchange for your own. It's religion that's telling you, here's the standard, jump a little higher, you might make it yet. The Bible says you'll never make it, Jesus made it for you. But Jesus alone listened in every instance, on every occasion, from childhood forward, He listened to His Father, and Jesus trusted His Father with His whole heart. We are truly becoming Christians. We are behaving like disciples when we learn to trust God in every instance with our whole life, not selectively in the areas which we enjoy, and we compartmentalize all the others and really focus on the parts that are going well as a guard and maybe an anesthetic and a distraction from the parts of our life that still aren't under God's domain. Don't do that. That's why this passage starts in the general and gets down to do two very painful specifics of what it looks like to trust God. Part of trusting God is honoring Him with the income that He gives you. And another part is acknowledging that try as you might, write it on your heart as you will, there will be times when he, you stray off the path. And whether through willful rebellion or simple human frailty and ignorance, you will go far from God, and at that moment, He is going to correct you. Now, how many of you love correction? How many of you go into work just hoping that HR calls you in and gives you a little talk? Don't you love the email from your manager? I just, I need about 15 minutes. First thing on Friday? Oh, no, not on Friday. That's when they fire people on Friday, not on Friday. <laughs> Why is there discipline? Why is there correction for this simple reason? Because He is your Father. Verse 12, the Lord reproves Him whom He loves as a Father 
the Son in whom He delights. Why does God correct you? Because He loves you. Because He delights in you. Because He sees you stumbling along, headed to sure destruction under your own guidance, going by visual recognition, and He knows there is a better, more blessed, more faithful, more life-giving way that He has chosen for you. I have two boys, so I'm right in the thick of this. There are times when those two boys have thought that I am the most ignorant, outdated, mean, irrational, cruel man perhaps in the entire world. Sometimes I get it wrong, but there are other times where they really chafe under my correction. Now, why do I invite, why do I set myself up for that kind of conflict? For one simple reason, I love them. And in my 40s, a few decades ahead of them, I see part of the foolishness that was in my heart when I was in there at their age start bubbling up, and I think to myself, oh, no, I know how that ride ends, and it's not good. The drop at the end is brutal. So, son, stop. That's because I love them. That's because I delight in them. This is the same invitation to the same path of blessing that your heavenly Father is inviting you to walk. This comes up all across the Bible. Jump forward, in fact, 3,000 years to the book of Hebrews and look at the reality of the Bible. Read that with me. The Bible, speaking of our correction in the Christian era, after the resurrection of Jesus, says this. Read this with me. It says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And a little further down, it says this. Keep reading. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. I love the clarity and the understatement of the Bible. Look at that first part. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Well, yeah. Nobody who's ever been spanked says, oh, good, the belt. I know this will be for my good. I know this will forge character in me that though I am young, I cannot begin to understand or appreciate, but I will welcome these sensations of pain as nerve endings relay discomfort to my cerebral cortex. This will be for the best. Never happened. Here's the point. You don't like it any better in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. When you're corrected by God, you won't like it. But you liking it in that moment is not the point. The point comes later. Later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The point of biblical discipline is not punishment, it's training. It's not destruction, it's to get you back on the path of Hebrew peace, shalom, that encompassed all of life, that went down to the bone level, that made you feel strong and right, and good, and properly related to God in every area of your life. That's what God has for you. That will, all of that discipline, all of that pain, all of that discomfort will eventually yield a fruit of a harvest of righteousness. The idea there is you will be well fed, you will be well cared for, you will prosper your whole life and in your old age, and from the things that come from your life, others will eat as well. You'll be a blessing beyond yourself. You'll have a long life, and not only a long life, but the right kind of life, a life that counts. All of this is found along the path of wisdom. 
and absolutely nothing in our culture, only clear teaching from God's actual Word, the Scripture, show you this path. Everything else at best is a distortion and a reinvention of the wisdom of God. Sometimes it's a flat-out contradiction of it. So what do you do? You listen humbly. You understand that in every area of life, God has shown you the way that goes beyond opinion. You understand that in every area of your life, including the ones that you most love to keep under your own direction, God has a way forward, but that's going to mean trusting Him in that specific area. That means that you welcome your income not as something that is kept entirely for you, but as a blessing from God to you in which He desires to be honored by first fruits giving, the first and the best part for Him, not what you have left over, but the first part in trust that He will provide the rest. And that means that unlike Jesus, because Jesus never did, when you stray from the path, you can expect your Father's firm correcting hand to maybe sometimes painfully put you back on the path, but He does that for the greatest reason of all, the most glorious thing I could ever tell you, that God loves you dearly, not as a competing God, but His own child that He purchased by the death and resurrection of His own Son, Jesus, and that He welcomes sinners into His family so that they can walk a path of blessing that God set out from the very beginning because He truly knows best. We dare not navigate by what our senses and other voices tell us. We need to trust God with all of our hearts so that He can bless our whole life. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that right now you would find tender hearts among us. Can I ask you a very personal question? Just to direct you to God, not to answer me. If you know Jesus as your Savior, would you go to Him right now and say, Father, in which area of my life am I leaning on my own understanding? Every single one of us, beginning with the guy who's talking to you, is self-willed. Every one of us thinks we're right. And where we disagree with God, where we go contrary to God's revealed word and will, we're wrong. Would you ask your heavenly Father, where am I resisting you? Where am I leaning more on my own understanding? He knows. If you ask Him humbly, He'll tell you. And then tell Him that you want to get back on the path, not just by thinking about it and identifying it, but by actually doing it, by changing it, by obeying Him. And if you don't know Jesus as Savior, listen, I haven't told you the best part of the story because that's not our Scripture passage this morning, but I've alluded to it. God's unfolding work stopped sending prophets and messengers and sent His own Son to die for sin, to welcome people into His family who were humble enough, and this is the miracle, humble enough to say, God, I'm wrong, I'm a sinner, I've blown it, I can't save myself, you please save me. Maybe you've been considering those claims of Jesus on your life for a while, but you've been resisting Him. Make this the day where you humble yourself, hear His good news, and trust Him. If you do in any of these respects, whether you're a Christian and you've identified a hard spot in your heart or you've leaned on your own understanding, whether you're placing your faith in Jesus as Savior, you're hearing that welcoming call and understanding that it's for you and turning to Him, I'd love for you to let us know that on the card. Return it to us as the offering baskets go by. Father, 
imperfectly, sinfully, with ignorance. Everything we've tried to do here this morning has been to honor, to praise you, to put you at the center and at the highest point of our lives and to tell you as a church, you know best. Help us, teach us to walk with you, walk in your ways. This offering, these prayers, these decisions, all of it, Lord, is to be under your will to submit to you. Receive it, Lord, as part of our worship. Bless the giver. Bless those who cannot give, provide employment for them. Care, Lord, for the poor. And may all of us, Lord, who have received income, honor you with it as one expression that you will rule over our whole lives. Have your, our, your way with us, Lord, we pray. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.